0: Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola, and I'm broadcasting with a sensible medicine podcast. And I'm excited to have a friend and colleague, Dr. Paul Dorian, an electrophysiologist from Canada. And we're going to talk today about arrhythmias in athletes. We're going to talk about high profile cases, screening for uh, athletes, chain of survival. And if we have time, we'll talk about the interesting condition of atrial fibrillation athletes. So, Paul, welcome and tell us uh, about your background. You're a really uh, uh, prominent author, 460 plus publications on PubMed, and introduce us to you on the podcast.
1: First of all, uh, thank you very much. It's a delight to be with you and uh, with your audience. I really appreciate this. Um I uh, trained in cardiology and clinical pharmacology at the University of Toronto and did my fellowship in electrophysiology at Stanford University under the mentorship of Roger Winkle. Originally, um, I was interested in antiarrhythmic drugs, as as one might imagine. And then gradually over the years, as electrophysiology changed, uh, we, of course, uh, all of us became more interested in devices, implanted defibrillators, ablation, and so on. Uh, And then... I began to do research on sudden cardiac death because I had the great fortune of working with colleagues in the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium across North America. Uh, And also, we had some uh, unique opportunities in the province of Ontario, where I work. It's a single-payer healthcare system, 12 million people, one set of data. We worked with the coroner of Ontario. It's a jurisdiction where every single sudden death in patients under age 35 gets an autopsy with no exceptions. So we have an absolutely unique opportunity to understand the epidemiology of sudden death, including sudden death in athletes. And that research work has gotten me more interested in the last five to 10 years in sports cardiology and sort of married my interest in sports and my interest in sudden cardiac death and ventricular arrhythmias.
0: Excellent. So I thought we would do this in a couple different chapters. In the first chapter, I think we should talk about these high profile cases of cardiac arrest um james demar hamlin christian erickson these extremely elite athletes having cardiac arrest requiring resuscitation so we'll talk about maybe the causes of this and why it happens uh we'll talk about second chapter is screening we should be able to detect this in 2023 and prevent this I think I'd like to go into some of the nuances of screening and and some of the pros and cons, um, what to do about treatment and the chain of survival, and then if we have time, atrial fibrillation. So let's, Paul, let's first talk about, you know, these big-time athletes. Christian Erickson, a soccer player, has a sudden cardiac death on the pitch. Damar Hamlin on Monday night football. Bronnie James during basketball practice really elite athletes having ventricular fibrillation requiring a shock? I mean, why does this happen? What's going on?
1: It's it's a fantastic question. Obviously, a lot to unpack. I think, if I may, before we get started, it's important to underline that these events are actually very rare. Um, many of your listeners are probably familiar with what's called the availability heuristic, which is our a tendency as human beings to exaggerate the importance or the frequency of rare events because they're so much popularized, they're in the public domain, they're so dramatic, and these are young, healthy individuals in the prime of life, often very celebrated. Um, So what we do know with a fair degree of certainty that the probability of cardiac arrest during competitive sport occurs in about one in every 200,000 competitive athletes per year. So it's a very uncommon event. We're, of course, talking about young individuals, say, between the ages of 18 and 25 or 30. Sudden death in older individuals, of course, is more common. It happens during sport, generally not professional sport, and it's most commonly due to coronary artery disease. In younger individuals, there's a whole variety of causes. I can't obviously speak directly to the causes of sudden death in the um, uh, athletes that you just described. I don't look after them. I only know what we read in in um, uh, in press reports and, and on the internet and so on. But contrary to what many people believe, the most common uh, underlying cause, we don't even know if it's a cause, the most common underlying condition that leads to sudden death during sport is what we call idiopathic ventricular fibrillation or sudden arrhythmic death without underlying cause. These individuals, if they have an autopsy, will have a structurally normal heart, will not have a history of uh, or uh, evidence or reason for us to believe that they have long QT syndrome or other primary arrhythmia syndromes. There is a particular um, demographic and that is division one basketball players in the United States. It's, it's, it's a particularly sort of unique set of individuals where it appears that uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is one of the more common, if not the most common cause. But we look at all sports across all continents, uh, um, all ages, you know, under age 35, I said earlier, older individuals are a bit different. Uh, the most common cause is not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It is uh, somebody dying suddenly with a normal heart, whether they've been screened or not screened.
0: Uh,
1: After that sort of 30, 40% of all cases comes a variety of conditions, which each represent maybe 10 to 15%. uh, That includes hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It includes arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is particularly common in some geographies like the Veneto region in Italy. uh, There's particular areas in Canada where this is somewhat more common. Uh, In young athletes, anomalous origin of the coronary arteries is sort of under-recognized, but it's not rare, probably about 10% of all cases. Then we have a whole host of conditions which represent less than 10%, but they're important, uh, including... Um, uh, CPVT or catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. I have to rehearse that every time I say it, um, um, uh, which is a, which is certainly can happen. Um, long QT syndrome. Not all long QT syndromes have an equal risk of sudden death during sport, but some do. And then relatively less common conditions like myocarditis, unrecognized cardiomyopathy, unrecognized or under recognized valvular disease and other sort of more rare conditions.
0: So that's great. So the most common cause is idiopathic, which is medical terminology for, we don't know. It just exactly. happens and I've seen it in my practice and it's it's crazy. Now, what do you think about, uh, we say idiopathic now in 2023, but perhaps if we did more genetic autopsies and if we had more data maybe some of these people with a structurally normal heart may have undiscovered genetic cardiomyopathies. I mean, just I throw that out there.
1: I absolutely agree with you. Um, Idiopathic is really a diagnosis of, of ignorance, if you like. We are pretty confident that in these so-called idiopathic cases, the heart is structurally normal. We know that because many of these individuals in in our jurisdiction have a detailed cardiac autopsy from a cardiac uh, specialized pathologist, and absolutely nothing is found on autopsy. Uh, individuals who survive usually get a whole host of investigations, including cardiac MRI. It's absolutely normal. So I think we can say with some confidence that these so-called idiopathic cases are not underrecognized structural disease. This is a purely electrical phenomenon. If I had to guess, and I have to uh, readily confess this is a guess that many of these individuals, if not most have some unrecognized or previously undiagnosed uh, Uh, disease of ion channels, which uh, potentially is polygenic because they generally test uh, negative. Um, And they just have the extraordinarily bad luck at the time of sudden death of having a premature ventricular complex, which falls in a region of the ventricle, uh, which is uh, um, where the nearby there's heterogeneity of repolarization, and it's under autonomic Circumstances typically high sympathetic tone, which makes the ventricle more vulnerable to fibrillation. I know that's a bit of hand waving, but that's my best guess.
0: Yeah, I and mean, then we have to talk about we have to talk about Damar Hamlin because this was a condition that it's obviously debated, but I think a consensus is arising that he had this blow to the chest, the so called commodiocortis. cordis. And uh, it's very interesting that this could happen. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, pops up in my mind is that in the old days, when we used to induce ventricular fibrillation to test defibrillators when we implanted them, we would put a very small shock right onto the T wave, the period of time where there's repolarization or relaxation of the heart. And if you hit even a small shock on that T wave, you can induce ventricular fibrillation. And so, this whole commodial cortis thing, tell us about that and. Um is that what happened to DeMar Hamlin? Uh, I, I think the consensus is that this is
1: our best guess. The, the underlying cause is probably related to electromechanical feedback. A blow to the chest, particularly to the mid-sternum, will result in a small depolarization of the myocardium, of ventricular myocardium, because of this translation of mechanical stress to an electrical event. Um, In order for this to happen, this is mostly work done by Mark Link, who has a pig model of this. We've done some work in an animal model looking at the detailed distribution of small shocks on a T wave to cause VF. Uh, It requires a few things for this event to happen. First, the blow has to be sufficiently large to the sternum. And typically we see this in young uh, children or, or young teenagers, uh, more common males than females because of the sports they play, either hockey or baseball, um, where they get a, a baseball or a hockey puck to the chest. Uh, we've seen cases uh, where during rugby, an individual falls on the ground with the rugby ball kind of under their chest and somebody falls on top of them. In DeMar Hanlon's case, I think it was a helmet, a blow to the chest. Uh, And this then sets up a vibration in the sternum in a young person with a a relatively, you know, how should I put this, vibratory sternum, which is they're not sort of ossified, osteoarthritic um, uh, type sternums. And this then leads to a small um, depolarization. And if it's timed, uh, unfortunately, Our basic science work suggests that the window, what we call the window of vulnerability, occupies approximately 10 milliseconds of the T wave. Immediately after the peak of the T wave, that's our our basic science work in an animal model. Uh, But this window is very, very short. So if you have a thousand milliseconds, let's say the heart rate is 60 beats per minute. It's gonna be faster during sport, but let's say it's 60 beats per minute for the sake of discussion. The window of vulnerability occupies about 10 milliseconds from that 1,000 millisecond R to R interval. So unfortunately for the individuals, the reason it's rare, which is good news, it needs to happen in this tiny window just just after the peak of the T wave in the worst possible location, which is a blow to the sternum with enough force to cause a depolarization. And of course, fortunately, this is an extremely rare event.
0: Yeah. I mean, a QT interval, let's just pick a number, 430 milliseconds. I mean, 10 milliseconds of that, that's an extremely small yeah, it's, uh, chance. And it, it has to be it, in a in a individual with a, like you say, a vibratory sternum. It has to be a young person. It has to be, yeah. So thank goodness.
1: Yeah. Just enormously bad luck.
0: All right. So we have these athletes who can have ventricular fibrillation, um, most common cause is unknown. Maybe the second most common cause is this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a thickening of the heart muscle. You have, um, anomalous coronary arteries. You have this really curious condition, arrhythmogenic right ventricular dys- uh, cardiomyopathy where the right ventricle becomes sensitive. You have certain causes of these things. I think that, the knee jerk reaction is we should be able to just bring these athletes in, get an EKG, do some screening. We should be able to detect this and then we can prevent these cases. So I really, um, sensible medicine is all about thinking critically, thinking rationally. What's wrong with that thinking or what's right with that thinking?
1: Well first let me say that it's a completely understandable premise. We well, part of medicine is trying to predict what's going to happen in the future even if we're not sure about exactly how to treat something. If you can't identify it, you can't you don't know what's going to happen, you sort of can't deal with it. The other in my opinion, the other reason that this has such extraordinarily uh, purchase, if you like, in the sports medicine and in the general medical community, is that we're talking about young, healthy individuals in the prime of life. Um, uh, Sport has, um, I think we can agree, maybe deserved, uh, certainly for cardiologists, uh, sport and exercise have a deserved important role to play in the sort of health of the population and individuals. Um, These individuals are often celebrities, at least professional athletes. So there's multiple social, cultural, economic reasons why we're particularly drawn to try to figure out what's going on here and try to prevent it if we can. That's an understandable and laudable premise. That said, there's a few things we have to be very sober about, which is kind of very much in in line with what sensible medicine is all about. First, and I'm just gonna go through some notions here that we we should think about when we think about screening individuals or screening as part of a program. First of all, it's ideal if a screening test picks up most people at risk. Uh, For example, I'll just use this as a metaphor here, there's a lot of debate about PSA screening for prostate cancer in men. But I think we can agree that it's pretty unusual, I'm not an expert at this, pretty unusual to have prostate cancer and not have an elevated PSA. So there's an example, maybe many other reasons why screening for prostate cancer may not be a good idea without getting into that, but at least we have a test where the test is very sensitive. We don't actually know this for uh, sports related sudden death. Pick uh, Mr. Erickson as an example. I don't know about him as an individual, but I know that every professional soccer player in Europe is screened annually. So, He obviously escaped through the the gauntlet of screening. Almost all professional athletes in 2023 or even in the last 10 years have been screened regularly. So if a professional athlete anywhere in the world today dies suddenly, you can be pretty sure that they have been screened, usually multiple times by experts. So these are examples of individuals who kind of slipped through the screening program. So screening tests are imperfect. We can argue about how sensitive they are, but we know they're imperfect.
0: Um, The second question... Let me stop you there. Sensitivity. Sensitivity is the test, if you have the condition, should pick it up. And what you've already said is that uh, PSA picks up positive tests. It's it's very sensitive. But screening for athletes, not so sensitive. So that's the first problem. Correct. What's the second problem? Uh, so
1: just to expand on that a tiny bit, uh, I, there's a general agreement that screening should include a history and physical, listening for murmurs, asking the person if they've ever fainted, is there family history of sudden death, electrocardiography is an important component of screening in some jurisdictions, not all, that will pick up certain things like um, uh, Many cases, but not all, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, long QT syndrome, uh, right ventricular disease, etc. But it's also an imperfect test. In some jurisdictions, uh, echocardiography, which is of course more complicated, more expensive. Uh, I can pick up some conditions for cardiomyopathies of various kinds and so on. But you have to sort of figure out what tests we're going to do. It's not like a PSA, which is one blood test. You can start with history and physical. You can do an ECG. You might do an echo. You might do an MRI in everybody, of course, that would be pretty expensive and complicated.
0: But um, even with all that, even with all that, if you just say, if you just say history, physical uh, ECG, it's pretty likely that all professional athletes have at least that maybe even an echo and yet there's still ventricular fibrillation and cardiac arrest in professional athletes. So there's an imperfect sensitivity city screening test. Precisely. Second problem. Second problem is we have to figure out,
1: this is more of a sort of a clinical epidemiologic equity problem, but I think it's an important one. We have to figure out who we are going to screen. Um, Is it only professional athletes? Is it collegiate athletes? Is it you know, in Canada, most elite athletes start not as high school or collegiate athletes. They train in clubs. So hockey, as an example, soccer, uh, many other sports, the, the elite athletes who then go on to become university athletes or Olympians start generally at age 12 or 13 or 14. And they uh, they uh, these are amateur clubs. They're not professional. But so are we going to screen club athletes? Are we going to screen only college athletes? Are we going to start screening at 18, which is typically the sort of university entrance? I think it's important to remember that in 2023, almost all high quality future stars start their sport at age 10, not at age 18. Right. So the typical 18 year old who is an elite athlete has been uh, doing their sport at a high level and high intensity, probably since their early teens. Are we going to start screening 12 or 13 year olds? I don't know the answer here. Just to point out that we have to think about who we're going to screen. What about serious recreational athletes? Are they less deserving of screening than collegiate athletes? I don't know that. We we do know that the vast majority of sudden deaths, this is work that we've done in Ontario, of course, and, and it's also done in Paris, France, not surprisingly. The vast majority of sudden death during sport is in recreational athletes, not in professional or university level collegiate type, semi-professional, if you like, athletes. So there's an equity issue here, and we haven't decided as a community who we are going to screen.
0: Yeah, that's an important topic. I wasn't even thinking you'd go there, but that's, I mean, really, that's a challenge because if you're going to screen... Uh, elite athletes or college athletes? What about high school athletes or what about people just participating? So that's definitely, and we don't have an answer, do we? There's not well, consensus. I,
1: I, 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 there, there's no consensus. This is almost a, a philosophical, uh, political, social question as much a medical question. Um, uh, the, the, the other thing we have to think about is that let's imagine that we've screened an athlete and they have an abnormality. We know that there are false negatives, but there's also lots of false positives, particularly uh, with an ECG. You can have a borderline QT interval. You can have left ventricular hypertrophy. You can have uh, typically the most common um, type of false positive on an ECG would be anterior T wave inversion which can be a sign of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or right ventricular cardiomyopathy or myocarditis for that matter, but can also occur in otherwise healthy athletes. This then, of course, then leads to a cascade of diagnostic tests, usually including an echo or an MRI. But even if we have a diagnosis, we need to understand the natural history of this condition. And here it gets really complicated, I am afraid. There's a general belief, in my opinion, This general belief is incorrect, that identifying, for example, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or identifying uh, long QT syndrome, depending, of course, how long the QT interval is, is like uh, like a, a, a sudden death sentence. There's a kind of an impression that these individuals are at very high risk. Now, I want to emphasize that I'm not suggesting these individuals are not at some risk. Our work from from Ontario, which we published some years ago in circulation, suggests that if you have an incidentally discovered case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in a population risk, now we're not talking about in in an HCM clinic, the risk of sudden death is about one per thousand per year. And most of those sudden deaths occur at rest and not with activity. So we need to understand the absolute risk Uh, relative risk of course is going to be higher but the absolute risk in many of these individuals it's also true for long qt syndrome there's work done by rachel lampert and others showing that um, uh, young people with long qt syndrome uh, they are clearly at some risk of sudden death but the risk is much lower than used to be believed i'm a huge fan as i hope most of your listeners are of absolute risks rather than relative risks And I think um, there's, I would invite all of your listeners, I I don't want to be long-winded here, but I invite every listener to check out uh, a Wikipedia page called um, Micromort, Micro-M-O-R-T. Micromort is an invention of, I think, an economist from Stanford who calibrates all dangerous activities in terms of the probability of death per million Patients or per million events per year. So if you climb Mount Everest, your chances of dying on a single Mount Everest climb is many hundreds of micromorts. If you drive on a highway for 500 miles, that's at least one micromort. Uh, if you ride a bicycle, I know John, you're very sensitive to this. You and I yeah. are both cyclists. If you're on a bicycle and you go on a 200 kilometer bike ride, that's probably a half to one micromort. So. We, we need to calibrate our beliefs about risks to these other activities, parachute jumping, mountain climbing, bungee cord jumping, all kinds of activities that many of, of us or many of our patients or uh, people we know undertake all the time voluntarily and, and, and calibrate our beliefs about risk of sudden death to these other activities, which we also know are risky activities.
0: Wow. That, I'm going to look that up and we'll link to that. Um, but the idea of absolute risk is important you went into two chapters there though you you in that comment or answer you you went into first the false positive rate so that's specificity in other words what are the chances that the uh, screening leads to something that's actually not a disease Uh, i want to break that down into uh, that's one idea. And the other idea is that if it is a true disease, like we find the thickening of the heart or we find a long QT, then what is the risk of proceeding? But I want to push you on the false positive. So my problem with ECG screening is we see so many things in our clinic that are totally just a normal variant, right? A heart rate of 38, um, a Uh, a big voltage because the chest wall is thin, or even on echocardiography, a typical false positive is RV dilatation because the athlete is an endurance athlete. And this this is an adaptation of athlete's heart. So this is one of the problems of screening, right? We see it with PSA screening, false positives, mammography, colonoscopy. And also I think it's a huge problem with ECG screening in uh, athletes. And and of course, there are ECG screeners, there are proponents who will say we have criteria, we have international criteria, we've published this, just follow it, and there won't be a problem. What do you think about the idea of false positives?
1: I, I agree with you completely. Um, our best estimate, approximate estimate, is that for every hundred athletes we screen, there'll be at least two or three which will have an abnormality on an ECG which warrants further investigation. Um, So there's a many fold more, it's the Bayesian conundrum, if you wanna call it, which is common in lots of situations that when you have rare conditions, even a relatively sensitive and specific test will yield more false positives and more false negatives than a true positives and a true negatives. Just because uh, the uh, abnormal ECGs are relatively common and abnormal ECGs caused by disease are relatively rare. And so we have, we have a, we have a, uh, a problem here. We have, and, and there's some argument about, you know, in, in the sports world about how salient or relevant this is. But you know, for every 100 athletes that we screen, we're gonna have three, four, five at least, who are gonna have an abnormal ECG, who will then be told you can't do your sport until we check you out. Then they have to have an echo. Most of them these days probably end up with an MRI. In the meantime, the athlete obviously is worried because they've been identified as maybe having something that causes sudden death. And then they're told when the test is negative, in some cases, well, the test was negative. We don't think you have this condition, but we better check you again next year uh, because you need another echo a year from now in case you develop over time a condition which you might have today. That's particularly true in very young individuals with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where at least some experts believe in annual echocardiography and potentially at-risk individuals because the phenotype changes over time.
0: Yeah, but um, the other thing, Paul, is you're talking about people who are lucky enough to meet uh, major centers like in Toronto or or big cities in the U.S. and, and be lucky to uh, uh, come to these expert centers. But a lot of screening, I'm not talking about elite athletes, but a lot of just high school and athletic screening is done by uh, people that are a lot less expert than you. And I think that the false positive rates in those cases are even higher.
1: I, I absolutely agree. Of course, we don't quite we don't know all of the information. We know that the, the world experts in this area have, to their credit, done a lot of very good work in trying to refine. In fact, the criteria we use now are so-called the refined criteria, which have eliminated previously a thought to be abnormalities. You know, We have less false positives than we used to, but you're absolutely correct. Um, there's some excellent work done by Dr. Sharma's group in London that suggests that inexpert clinicians uh, are more likely to call ECGs abnormal. They miss more, but they're particularly much more likely to have false positives. So then again we have to get back to what we talked about earlier, it's almost a sociological, medical, legal economic question of where are we going to find highly trained electrocardiographers who have the, ideal amount of expertise to have ideal uh, sensitivity without ex- an ideal specificity in interpreting all these ECGs. Remember that uh, the best estimate we have, at least in Ontario, is approximately 10% of uh, young individuals between the ages of 18 and 25 are at some time going to do some competitive sport. That's a lot of people.
0: Yeah, and I would just testify just I've been reading EKGs for thirty years, and uh, it's sometimes difficult. You you are asked to just say that person is fine, he or she is fine. Go at it, and you know that there's still a micro mort, however small a risk that that something bad could happen. So the tendency is to just uh, say, nope, this is some more disease, and we have to do more testing. And that's the second question I want to get to you: is what's what's wrong with that? I mean. Uh, uh Dallas Maverick's uh, 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 owner, uh, um, I forget his name, but he's he's all into testing. more information is good. Why don't we just do test? Uh, the downside here is ventricular fibrillation. We should just test everybody. What's the problem with this so-called downstream or cascade testing?
1: It's an excellent question. I, well, first of all, it's expensive and complicated, and you need a particular expertise. You know, many of these individuals, particularly younger ones, will have ambiguous findings on objective tests. Uh, we see ambiguous findings on echocardiography, uh, where uh, um, a septal—I don't want to get too technical here—but a septal thickness of 13 or 14 millimeters, it's not clear if that's so-called. Uh, athlete's heart with with expected physiological what we call uh, physiological remodeling versus pathological remodeling from an abnormal phenotype. You know, if if you have somebody with dramatic ventricular hypertrophy, that's straightforward. What if somebody has a mild mitral valve prolapse? What do we how do we deal with that? What if somebody has a QT interval of four hundred and seventy five milliseconds, just beyond the upper limit of normal for males. Uh, that could be a perfectly healthy person who does not have the ion channel abnormality. So there's going to be lots of gray zone individuals. So that's one big set of problems, aside from the expense. Then we have probably the biggest problem in my mind, or an equally large, maybe larger problem, and the following. What if we identify somebody who undoubtedly has, let's call it an abnormal phenotype for the sake of discussion? the vast majority of people with an abnormal phenotype are going to die of old age or from pneumonia or from coronary artery disease or some other cancer, whatever. They're not going to die suddenly. So sudden death, even amongst individuals with an identified abnormality, excuse me, all cause death is usually not sudden death. Most deaths are not sudden, not on the playing field. The second problem we have, which is a Related to the first problem is that even if, let's take hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where we actually have data, very good data from from the province of Ontario, we published this in circulation. We we identified individuals who had unquestionable hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who died suddenly. 15% of them approximately died during sport. 85% died at rest or during everyday activity. So even if a person has a so-called arrhythmogenic substrate, and even if they are destined to die suddenly, tragically, this is, of course, very unfortunate, most of those deaths do not occur during sport. So I think it's important for the audience, and this, to my mind, is insufficiently frequently discussed in the sports literature. There's two completely separable issues in respect to sudden death during sport when you have an abnormal phenotype that we have to think about. One is, does continuing sport worsen the phenotype? So in arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, we have reasonably good evidence that the more sport you do, high intensity, uh, high aerobic demand, the worse your phenotype is going to be. The same may be true for myocarditis in the acute phase for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it may be the exact opposite. There's subclinical data and excellent animal data that in fact, sport protects you from worsening of the phenotype over time. So that's one set. And of course, if you have ion channel abnormalities, the phenotype is not gonna be altered by sport. The risk of sudden death might be increased, but you're not gonna make the underlying structure worse. The second issue is To what extent is competitive sport going to increase your risk of sudden death? We have to remember that we're not going to, and it's probably inappropriate to tell somebody with uh, some risk factor for sudden death that they should just lie on the couch and play video games. Right. We want to find some safe level of activity. We don't know what that safe level is. Lots of recreational athletes push themselves harder than some competitive athletes. So I think... We have, in my opinion, this is strictly opinion. I'll be quite frank with your listeners here. In my opinion, we, we have, an, uh, I think, an excessive kind of view of competitive athletes as representing some special category of athletes. We know that some people just run on Sundays because they feel like it, and they run at 95% of their maximum heart rate because that's what they do. We have other people who enter sanctioned races like marathons but go nice and slowly because they just want to finish. You could call them a competitive athlete, but they're much less competitive than the weekend warriors who ride up a hill and turn the blue in the face. You and I are probably familiar with that concept. So I think we have to be careful when we say competitive athletes in terms of exactly what we mean.
0: Yeah. I'm going to summarize, but I want to just, that arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, ARVC, is a really interesting phenomenon. and It is one of the only conditions, really one of the only conditions that I can think of, of any medical condition that exercise makes worse. And I think it's really rare. Uh, it's a rare cause of, it's a rare cause of arrhythmia, but it's really interesting that that's the only time where we really tell these athletes who have this condition which is diagnosed by echo MRI and genetics that they really shouldn't be an endurance athlete, but that's really rare, isn't it? I
1: agree with you. In most series, uh, we don't know quite the incidence. It, it It's highly geographically dependent. Um, there's some parts of the world of uh, the Veneto region in Italy, as I mentioned in Newfoundland, which is a province in Canada, there's a very high incidence, but Overall, sort of across the planet, it's
0: relatively uncommon. And most of these conditions, really, uh, exercise probably doesn't make it worse, or maybe even improves it. That is correct. So to summarize, four things. Let me just think if I can get this right. A screening test may not pick up the condition, so it doesn't have very perfect sensitivity. It it may pick up the condition that isn't there, false positive. We Third thing is we don't know who to screen, elite athletes or uh, younger athletes. And uh, fourth is that when we do pick up a condition and everything is right, we still don't know uh, how to restrict their activity. That is correct.
1: I, I think the, just to expand on that last point, there's a general belief, not always articulated, that if you tell an athlete you should not do your sport, that will then reduce their future risk. We don't know that that is true. Most of the data that's cited comes from a retrospective case uh, series by uh, Professor Corrado from Italy. Uh, I I think the details are important here. He published a a series, so the pre-screening period in this region of Italy, uh, they observed a sudden death rate of about 3.5 per 100,000 athletes per year. In the After they started screening, that incidence of sudden death went down to less than 1 per 100,000 per year. At the same time, we now know, this is now 15 years later, in virtually every jurisdiction in the planet, without screening, where we have looked carefully at the incidence, it's also less than 1 per 100,000 per year. So the, the epidemiology that suggests that screening and restriction from sport Actually saves
0: lives is very poor, I'm
1: afraid. Yeah, you
0: know, that's an important point. And it gets to your point about absolute risk. When you're when we're looking to screen for lung cancer and smoking, we're enriching the population of people who could have the condition. Same with screening for, say, somebody who has a high risk of family history of breast cancer. If you screen that person, you're highly likely. But if you're screening athletes and the incidence of a ventricular arrhythmia enough to cause cardiac arrest is in the range of one in 1,000 or two in 1,000, I'm, I'm sorry, one in 100,000 or, or three in 100,000. It's just conceivably hard for me to think that that could be re- reduced any further.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think perhaps another example or metaphor might be prostate cancer screening in elderly individuals or people over the age of 70 or 75. We know we can identify prostate cancers, that sort of phenotype identification, but most of those individuals will not die from their prostate cancer. They'll die with their prostate cancer. Similarly, most patients we identify with these conditions will not die from their arrhythmia, they'll die from something else. And we we really don't know whether restricting sport is necessarily going to reduce the likelihood of sudden death.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk to you about uh, treatment but one quick final question on this business about restriction of sport people say well there's a risk you should just not do sport but as somebody who does sport i think that's a horrible a very difficult thing to restrict taking away a sportsman's ability to exercise especially some of these athletes they have a gift and they can do it and to take that away is not small, I don't think.
1: Um, I, I I agree completely with you. There's a concept which has been introduced probably in the last five years by the sports cardiology community, which is an important concept. And I think it's valuable, which is so-called shared decision-making. So we, we've we gradually, as a community, I think correctly moved away from the paternalistic because most sports cardiologists are male, we, I don't wanna be sexist here, um, from a sort of a, a ex cathedra pronouncement from the doctor, you the patient have a risk and you shouldn't do sport. We now are moving away from that and recommending a, a sort of a more nuanced discussion, which is uh, you the athlete have a condition, here are the risks, here are the possible benefits of doing less in, in, intensive sport. Let's talk about your values and preferences. How important is it to you? For some people, it's their livelihood. It's their raison d'être. They, this, they're alive. They think only to do their sport. And they may be quite willing to do risk. So look, people climb Mount Everest, uh, and we don't, necessarily say to people, this is crazy, you shouldn't try to climb out to Everest, even though the mortality rate amongst Everest climbers is pretty high, but we celebrate those individuals. So I think we need to have a, a, a difficult and nuanced conversation, and part of the job of the sports cardiologist, I think, is to help athletes, the way I phrase it, is help them interrogate their own values and preferences. How important is it to them to compete how important is it to them to continue doing what they're doing and what kind of trade-offs are they willing to contemplate based on our best estimate of the probability of sudden death if they
0: were to continue smart. Okay, but you have brought it up, so I'll just follow up, but uh, shared decision-making is great and it works, but there's also uh, other entities, right? There's the universities, there's the professional teams that have a say in this too. And and that really gets complicated.
1: Uh, it absolutely does. Uh, um, I think as soon as a, an athlete is an employee, we get into very complicated legal and ethical quagmires, because now it's not clear whether the caregiver, now we're talking about the cardiologist or the physician, is it—is this a team physician? Are they representing the team? Are they representing the athlete? Is this for the safety of the individual? Is it because the athlete is a potential um, money-making uh, machine for the for the professional team and the public?
0: It it's it's a very difficult uh, situation. Right. So now let's move into the chain of survival. The three people that we mentioned: Bronny James, uh, Damar Hamlin, and Christian Erickson, They all had ventricular fibrillation requiring a shock and so-called sudden cardiac death, but they didn't die. And so we, we really have huge developments in the ability to prevent a person with these ventricular arrhythmias from dying. And I know you've written and and studied this about uh, CPR and uh, urgent resuscitation. So speak to this soul chain of survival? Because I have some strong feelings about it, but I want to hear yours first.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, thank you for bringing that up. I, I apologize for, before I answer your question, I've been extremely remiss in not pointing something out important. The risk of sudden death in males is tenfold higher than females. We need to remember that. So when we talk to, when we talk to female athletes, it's a completely different conversation. Um, we don't understand why, by the way, but it's a dramatic difference. If we talk about AFib, that's also true for AFib, by the way, in athletes. The only exception here, I think, would be arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is equally dangerous in women as in men. But for reasons that we don't understand, uh, women elite women athletes, even if they have an abnormal phenotype, are much, much less likely to die suddenly than men. So the conversation needs to be quite different uh, when we talk to female athletes as opposed to male athletes. But then, so let's get back to the 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 um, CPR and automated defibrillators. I'll leave your um, audience with some extraordinary, encouraging, but, but uh, data that should be thought provoking. In Japan, uh, if one has a cardiac arrest during a sanctioned run, that's a full marathon or a half marathon, at least in the published research letter to the New England Journal from about three or four years ago, the probability of dying with a cardiac arrest is zero. It's extraordinary. So that speaks to their fantastic and as laudable cannot congratulate them any more than, than is possible about how carefully our Japanese colleagues have have sort of dealt with this problem. During sanctioned long endurance runs, marathons and half marathons, they have um, paramedics equipped with AEDs or defibrillators in backpacks, and they ride up and down the, the course on bicycles. And they have a, system of communication and walkie-talkies, I'm dating myself here, uh, some uh, wireless communication, which means that if somebody has a cardiac arrest, the defibrillator is brought to the victim within approximately two minutes. We're talking extraordinary or less. And they get defibrillated and the survival rate in their report was 100%. This is fresh data from the province of Ontario. We've published this in abstract form. If you ha if if a person in um a uh somewhere in the province of Ontario we haven't covered the entire province this is in a uh, in in a, in urban centers in Ontario Canada uh, populations of about thirteen million in the absence of any systematic sports CPR AED provision like most most um, parks and arenas and Sports facilities have a defibrillator, but there's no systematic, organized, uh, funded program for AED use. That, Despite that, if you have a cardiac arrest in many regions in Canada during sport, at any age, your chance of surviving is about 55 to 60%. It's fantastic. Like, it should be, we hope, 100%. And we're talking about runners, hockey players, cyclists. Things that happen in gyms, the survival, as you might imagine, in, in among cyclists, is a little less because it's on the road and it's harder right. to get a defibrillator to somebody who collapses, you know, on the road. Um, it's very difficult in, in for swimming uh, uh, for water cardiac arrests. The survival rates are obviously lower. So we already have some pretty good data. Some of this comes from from our European colleagues that a cardiac arrest during sport should be survivable in the majority of cases with a little bit of community effort. And that community effort, in my opinion, by the way, this is way more cost-effective than screening athletes, way more cost-effective, and much more likely to lead to survival, understanding all the limitations of screening and so on that we talked about. So what we would need is some combination of ready availability of automated defibrillators that are easily findable and they're close to the places where the athletes are likely to collapse. We need education of caregivers. We're talking about trainers, coaches, teammates, parents, if they're kids, uh, bystanders, public, to recognize that an athlete that collapses, it's probably not just a simple faint, but somebody who collapses during sport that's a big red flag that something horrible is happening. And we need education of the public to recognizing that this is a, an emergency. We need education in recognizing the signs of pulselessness and how to deploy and use an automated defibrillator, as well as CPR, of course.
0: seems to me a absolutely perfect role for true public health, right? Because you educate people, families, athletes, coaches... And general public, and it seems like a, just a, a a cultural community effort. And I know some places in Northern Europe are really good at this. Denmark, for instance, has a very strong uh, uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest sort of culture. Um, and yeah, it just seems to me that when you're, the reason why it's more cost-effective is because instead of screening 100,000 athletes to pick up a disease that you don't even know if it's going to cause a problem, you're actually treating the overt disease. Yeah, I, I absolutely. And and the
1: really good news here is we have the three examples you mentioned right at the beginning of the, of the podcast. Um, all of them were saved by an AED. Uh, we have in the remote past, we have tragic situations of an AED is available on the bench and it's not deployed because of the beliefs about the sensitivity of the public to see somebody resuscitated. Fortunately, in 2023, I think we can be hopeful and probably it's true that an athlete collapsing on the field or in the gym or somewhere within sight of an AED, that AED will be used. And thank goodness the athletes you talked about all got saved by an, by an external defibrillator.
0: Yeah, for me, I think that if we really want to impact the survival of ventricular arrhythmias in, in athletes, it seems to me rather than more screening, it's more AEDs and more education would be much more likely to impact the uh, survival.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And of course, AEDs are getting easier to use, require relatively little training, and are coming down in price. So it's a pretty cost. Even if an AED is going to be used rarely, if ever, I have many colleagues who believe that AEDs should be like fire extinguishers. You should have several of them in every house. There's some new technologies which may mean that AEDs are going to be even smaller and even less expensive than they have been in the past. And, you know, this is a bit um, futuristic or maybe um, uh, Pollyannish of me, but I can see the future where there's multiple AEDs in every field, in every gym. They're on the wall. They're they're sort of everywhere. On lampposts,
0: you name it. And even maybe part of People's secondary education to graduate high school is a course just in the ability to do basic CPR and resuscitation. Exactly. Paul, this has been awesome. We have another topic of AFib and athletes, but I we've already been on for 52 minutes. And I think what we should do is bring you back and talk about the whole concept of AFib, which is a completely different arrhythmia than these ventricular arrhythmias. And maybe spend the same thing, 40, 50 minutes talking about that. Would that be all right with you? I would be delighted. It's a pleasure chatting with you. And uh,
1: this has been really fun. Thank you so much.
0: And for the listeners, you really need to know that Paul Dorian is a world's expert in this area, multiple publications, senior professor, and uh, we're really grateful to have him and excited to have this. And remember that if you like the podcast, leave us a comment, uh, uh, give us a rating. We're trying to get increased visibility of this. So, uh, uh, spread the word and Paul, thank you very much for being on the great pleasure. All right. Excellent.